losing just one millimetre of topsoil is the equivalent to losing up to 12 tonnes of soil per hectare and can result in a 1-6% to yield loss. It's an alarming statistic. So, what do you need to do then to manage eroded soils and maintain appropriate soil nutrition? To explore this, I'm joined in the GRDC studio by Dr Sean Mason from Agronomy Solutions, Mary-Anne Young from Primary Industries and Regions South Australia, and Harm Van Rees from CropFacts. Thank you all for your time. Hey, Drew, no problems. Thank you, Drew. In some of the southern region over the last couple of growing seasons, there has been significant erosion brought on by the dry conditions. What has this meant for growers? Well, I suppose I can just say for a start, Drew, for some of our croppers, this year was looming as a fourth possible year. So earlier in the season, we were looking at perhaps four years drought. But we've had some farmers doing really the right things in over these years with their cropping systems and keeping stubbles and, and no till. Just the fact they haven't been able to grow crops has been quite demoralising for them. Part of that is because they simply haven't been able to get the cover to protect the soils that they're usually really concerned about and what we've found is too that the the erosion itself has a really depressing and demoralizing effect on farmers that it's just a reminder of the drought so it's as much about their well-being as it is about the economic losses that they might be looking at most farmers you know hate seeing their farmers their soils blow away they know that there's nutrition losses they're losing nutrients water holding capacity so they know that not only they're suffering from a drought, but they're also losing a valuable resource. You make a really good point there, Marianne, in regards to the two sides of this equation. There's the mental health side and the economic side. In terms of the economic side, losing that topsoil can result in yield losses. What are we actually talking about, though, in terms of disappearing layers of topsoil and what's that actually equate to? Well, there's a focus on two aspects with soil erosion and whether it be wind or water, they have very similar impacts. And the first one, because you're losing soil depth, you're also losing plant available water holding capacity of the soil. And that's pretty critical, especially in, in the drier environments in the Mallee. But the, the larger one that is probably hidden a little bit more is the change in nutrient content because you're losing the really fine fractions of the soil which hold a lot of the the water as well as the organic matter and in some cases you also actual nutrients are blowing away as well so you're changing the whole characteristics and the the products the productive capacity of the soil through erosion by losing some soil depth as well as nutrient content and that takes time to rebuild especially on sandy soils that can take quite a bit of time. Um, are some nutrients more vulnerable or variable than others when it comes to soil erosion? No, I think most of the nutrients, because they're attached to the finer particles of the soil, they blow away. And especially the fine matter, the soil organic matter, if that is lost as well, which is generally occurs during a wind erosion event, then that reduces the soil nutrient capacity. In terms of the actual nutrients, because they are generally held by the soil organic matter, that both are lost. What does that relate to then, Sean, in terms of some sort of rough productivity loss for a producer? 
Yeah, I've got some numbers thanks to Rob Norton, who's very good at presenting at this stuff. So GRDC dry time forums that went around early in the year. I mean, it's all different circumstances, but uh, you're basically losing one millimetre of topsoil. It suggested any yield loss can be between one and six percent, and the actual numbers around the loss of soil fertility. I guess we're we're concentrating our organic carbon at the surface, so that's quite vulnerable. So about 25% of organic carbon sits at the top two centimetres, and again, it's going to be different depending where you are in the landscape. And I guess soil loss is, I suppose, talking about nutrient susceptibility. Mobility is probably key in that, so phosphorus is a key one that's quite immobile, basically stays where you put it. So about 40% of P is located in the top two centimetres, again, associated with organic carbon and previous fertiliser inputs. So a fair bit of concentration. Again, no-tills stratified our soils to more extent than, than the cultivation period. So, uh, yeah, really key, I suppose, to keep the soil where it is, if we can. You mentioned there that those nutrients, particularly phosphorus, it's located in the top two centimetres, but you're really only going to know what you lose by testing, I assume. So what sort of testing regime have you got to put in place so that you've you've got some sort of benchmarking and understanding of where you're at, what you've lost and what you need to replace? Yeah, I think that's the key point is benchmarking. So we've done a bit of work post wind event and erosion events. So we can obviously analyse what's unknown and I suppose the question marks of, of moving paddocks or moving soil within a paddock. So that's quite easily done. Again, knowledge is king. So actually yeah, putting probes down in, in different zones of where the soil has moved to is key uh, as much as still sampling in the parts that have eroded. That's really important. Harm did have a good aspect of previous work where we sort of benchmark GPS points. That's really key at this stage to do continued monitoring with time. So actually going back to the same spot, what we can actually do, what we don't have a lot of data is pre-erosion event, what the nutrient status was, and then sample after and just see what quantifies some of those losses and or potential gains on other parts where the soil is actually deposited in the paddock. So monitoring is key, but doing it properly and having proper locations within the paddock and soil-type zones is really important. You and I and Harm, we've talked about soil testing in detail in other podcasts, but just as a broad thumbnail, what percentage of your property do you need to be soil testing? 100%. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I don't mean that the whole farm needs to be soil tested, but it's best to keep going back to the same spots where you do your soil testing. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And the first one is that there is a lot of variability in soil testing, so you don't have to move very far in a paddock to get a different result. So if you keep going back to the same spot and you keep your measurements at the same area all the time, that really reduces the variability if you're looking at them over a time scale because what you're trying to pick up is whether your phosphorus or your nitrogen rates are changing over time so that you can then adjust your fertiliser program. Probably less so with nitrogen but especially so with phosphorus and in some areas where people have to apply potassium, that would also apply. So we think it's very important to go back to the same locality in paddocks and have them based on a soil zone or a soil type so that you know what is actually happening on the different parts of your paddock in relation not only to your cropping rotation but also to your fertiliser regime over time. Yes, and I'd I'd emphasise particularly about that soil zones because if you do have a dune swale type system, you'll be getting quite different results from the 
the top of the dune to the flats in between. And with variable rate technology now, it's easy to adjust your fertiliser rate accordingly. So that real emphasis of going back to the same sites is really important, but making sure that you have representative soil types across your property is a good idea of knowing what's happening nutritionally-wise with those soil types. Moving on from soil testing, what are some of the short-term measures that can be taken to actually prevent wind erosion? It's all about cover. We're going to have both water and wind erosion events. There's no question of that. So, And they're going to be happening. And cover is the most important component to reduce erosion. And if we're in a dry spell, so we've had two or three very dry seasons consecutively, then we are going to have reduced cover. And if you're running livestock, it is really important to have exclusion zones where you can take your livestock so that the livestock don't bear paddocks out because once they're beared out in a dry year, the cover is not going to come back. So there's a real balance in making sure that you retain cover and we always targeted a minimum of 50% ground cover. And when you get less than that, then the soil is going to be very susceptible to either wind or water erosion. Yeah, and I think too, there's also, it's the structure of the cover too. So percent ground cover, having as much of the ground physically covered is really important for water erosion. But in wind erosion, it's also the height. So you want standing anchored cover. You know, having um, a sort of a mulch on top of a sand dune, sometimes that mulch can actually get blown away. So if you're thinking about what type of erosion are you expecting, if it's water erosion, near yeah, the 100% ground cover is well, as much as you can get. But with wind erosion or sandy soils, you're probably looking at having some really good, well-anchored, dense stubble. So it still can be, you know, looking from above, it's probably not 100% surface cover or, you know, a high proportion, but actually getting the wind up away from the soil surface is really a vital function of that cover. And Drew, in some cases, it's impossible to avoid. For example, during the millennium drought, after three or four really dry years, it is going to be really hard to retain cover. There's no question of that. Exactly. So in those instances with prolonged dry seasons, what then are your options when you've run bare, for want of a better description? And it's limited. I mean, some people try deep ripping, so they're bringing up deeper subsoil to the surface and the subsoil generally contains more clay, so you're creating clods in the soil, which are much less erodible than the soft topsoil is. That is one way. And trying to retain shelter belts around the paddocks is a good idea as well, but it is really difficult in the dry environment to stop all erosion during a drought period. We work on the principle that if it is totally bare and you're trying to work out what can I do to stop it eroding, The key thing, again, is soil type. And as Harm said, having some clay in the soil gives you some options. But if it's pretty sandy soils, some people talk about, oh, can I cultivate it? Can I rip it? In that situation, we'd say just leave it alone. Get stock off. Don't even drive over those really sandy soils. Just keep them intact as much as possible. By doing that, sometimes the soil surface develops a bit of an armouring, so it gives it some sort of resistance to wind erosion. But then if you have clay in the profile, if you can actually disturb or cultivate the soil and bring up clods, ideally we'd say you know anything fist size or bigger, but on soils that are well aggregated, they can bring up clods that are enough to just roughen the soil surface and stop the wind sweeping over the soil surface. 
depending on how much clay you've got and where it is in the soil, there are a number of different treatments you might be looking at. The key one is if you can rip it and, and just bring up clods and they're not going to slump straight away and they're going to persist for a while, that will give you some protection. You know, in the really windy events, you're still probably going to have soil movement, but you've given the soil a chance to stabilise. What about actual clay spreading? I assume, though, that's going to vary according to access to clay and cost. And in particularly in lower rainfall areas too, it's perhaps a, a bit more dicey. So it is an option, but you've got to look at your soil type and the clay that you're spreading and how you're going to spread it and things like that. So if people are looking at clay spreading or delving, we'd say there's some information around that you'd probably be well worth looking at first before you decide that you're going to use that as a treatment option. But it certainly has been used as to try and protect soils. And we've got evidence from down in the southeast where they had a fire that um, clayed soils actually were much better protected from wind erosion than the sandier unclayed soil. I think that soil type interactions key. So that's, again, knowledge both at surface level but also what you're bringing up if you do decide to rip. There's a really good table in the GRDC fact sheet but the, from Rural Solutions about what to do depending on soil type. Marianne, there was a strategic teal type roughening of the surface procedure, possibly for heavier soil types. But Yeah, uh, yeah, and the more clay soils, if cultivation is basically just um, ripping, but in, on cropping soils, it's probably more of a feasible option because if you're going to crop the soil later in the year, you're going to be wanting a level surface anyway. Once upon a time, we die with a leg in the air suggesting you cultivate your soils. But when there's no cover and it's providing some roughness, it works just as well as anything else. How then does the loss of topsoil affect nutrition management? When we're losing topsoil, we're definitely going to lose the nutritive value of the soil, both through the loss of soil organic matter, as well as the direct loss of nutrients. The long-term ability to manage that is to make sure that you sample at fixed sites so you know what the nutrient value of the soil is and then you resample after erosion vents so you know exactly what you're losing from different parts of the paddock and then adjust your fertiliser program during the cropping phase or during the pasture phase to incorporate the additional nutrients that you've lost during the erosion events. And that's probably one of the only ways that we can effectively manage erosion loss in productivity over time. Yeah, I think given the nature of soil movement in these events, I think it's really important to possibly segment your soil sampling or soil core a bit more just to get a bit more detail of what's happened at that surface because it's all obviously surface related. But just going through the 0 to 60 pogo is not going to tell you much information on the change of fertility of what's happening at the surface and probably the key to early vigour with a crop C, just an aspect of possible segmentation and look at that with time, like Harm said. So, Sean, are you suggesting that on these soils we should maybe go from 0 to 5 and then 5 to 10 and then deep? Possibly, yeah. I'm not sure how many people would actually take that up. but Because uh, you could probably have soil moving from a surface and depositing somewhere where that all that topsoil is concentrated, but you're actually drilling your seed past that. So, yeah, for that current year, it could be important. I guess that's how time management of people is an aspect of, and obviously a barrier with soil sampling doing more. So, yeah, I would definitely at least do 0 to 10, and if we want to get final detail of what's actually happening in the 0 to 10, 0 to 5, 5 to 10 would be useful. Would you agree, huh? Yeah. I, I, well, Marianne, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, if you can, but it's not always easy, I think. Yeah. You know, particularly on, 
um, the sandier soils. But the other thing is too that um, that soil might have moved around but not lost from the paddock. It's it's in the paddock somewhere. So yeah. you, you might bit. actually find out that there's some areas that are, oh, no, they've actually gained a bit of <laughs> nutrients. So you can – it is a bit thinking about, so where has that soil moved to? Have I lost it completely or is it somewhere else in the paddock? And let's make sure we test that area as well. Yeah, I think some software platforms that are easily accessible now, NDVI maps in season and just checking zones. If you've got established zones in the past, just seeing how they've behaved in terms of early productivity after a wind event might be useful. Sean, this year's harvest has just been completed on trials for your work on the GRDC investment. This project investigates the use of soil and plant testing data to better inform fertiliser investments. Can you just briefly run us through some of the key outcomes from this year? I can, yes. Uh, so key outcomes are to come, I guess, is the main one. So we've got harvest results coming in now. So they're going through economic analysis through our CSRO team. Previous to that, we have been able to, through Michael Moody uh, and MSF, to get some more paddocks and growers that have actually seen a severe wind erosion event in the paddock. So the premise of the project is to soil sample, provide a recommendation on that NMP status in that soil across two zones in the paddock. So we've been able to increase that to three or four zones, depending on how much the soil's moved. So I suppose the starting nutrient status was pretty much as you would expect from a June swell system. So sands were low in organic carbon, which might be an obvious one, and obviously low in nitrogen, whereas the the heavier part, the the swales, actually had decent nitrogen reserves, but potentially needed some more phosphorus. So nothing really's changed and nothing really stood out too much from that event, which is probably a good message. And in those paddocks, we've put in NP response trials, so farmer scale response trials, and definitely the in-season stuff was plant dry matter cuts and, and analysis looks pretty good and in line with what we saw the previous year. So I suppose the main message is to come with the grain analysis and we'll be able to do a full report from that hopefully soon. Is there anything else I've missed, Tom, or anything you'd like to add? Maybe the only thing, Sean, is we always tend to have a focus on phosphorus and nitrogen, but I think we should also remember that there are other nutrients which also move during either wind or water erosion, which is part of the soil fraction at the surface layer, which is zinc. And in Victoria and South Australia, we don't have many soils which are potassium poor or they need potassium, but that's certainly something to look at on the very, very fine sandy soils as well. So there is a, there are other nutrients that we should be monitoring if we're setting up a nutrient program over a prolonged period of time. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast. Dr. Sean Mason from Agronomy Solutions, Mary Ann Young from Primary Industries and Regions South Australia, and Harm Van Rees from CropFax. Thank you for joining me in the GRDC studio. And for more information on soil erosion prevention and management techniques, visit the GRDC website. But for now, thanks everyone for your time. Thanks very much, Drew. Thank you, Drew. It's a pleasure.